Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin and go to the UK where today King Charles anointed the latest British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and speak with Polly Toynbee, a columnist for The Guardian who was formerly the BBC's social social affairs editor, columnist and associate editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly and a reporter and feature writer for The Observer. She's the co-author of Dismembered, How the Attack on the State Harms Us All, and we will discuss her latest article at The Guardian, Rishi Sunak's Cuts Will Be More Brutal Than Austerity. Remember, they are a choice, not a necessity. And what the new Prime Minister meant when he said in his first speech that the country is, quote, facing a profound economic crisis with difficult decisions to come. Then we'll explore the disconnect between the Republicans running against the Biden economy, which just cut the deficit by a record amount, and the GOP's apparent intention to crash the global economy to force cuts in Social Security and Medicare should they get elected. Joining us is Lynn Paramore, a senior research analyst at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, where she founded and edits the Next New Deal blog a cultural theorist who studies the intersection of culture and economics. She's the author of Reading the Sphinx, Ancient Egypt in 19th Century Literary Culture, as well as the e-books Corporations for the 99% and New Economic Visions. She has an article at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, How Corporations Get Away with Murder to Inflate Prices on Rent, Food and Electricity. Then finally, we'll assess President Biden's warning to Putin today not to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine or conduct a false flag operation with a dirty bomb, which they'd blame on Ukraine, saying, quote, I spent a lot of time today talking about that. Let me just say Russia would be making an incredibly serious mistake if it were to use a tactical nuclear weapon. I'm not guaranteeing that it's a false flag operation yet. We don't know. It would be a serious, serious mistake. Joining us is Edwin Lyman, Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists and an internationally recognized expert on nuclear proliferation and nuclear terrorism, as well as nuclear power safety and security. He is a member of the Institute for New Materials Management and has testified numerous times before Congress and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and is the co-author of the critically acclaimed book, Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from the UK is Polly Toynbee, a columnist for The Guardian, who was formerly the BBC's social affairs editor, columnist and associate editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly, and a reporter and feature writer for The Observer. She is the co-author of Dismembered, How the Attack on the State Harms Us All. And her latest article at The Guardian is Rishi Sunak's Cuts Will Be More Brutal Than Austerity. Remember, they are a choice, not a necessity. 
Welcome to Background Briefing, Polly Toynbee. Well, thanks for joining us. And President Biden praised Rishi Sunak on Diwali, the the Hindu Indian holiday. And of course, (laughs) he mispronounced his name, but I guess the sentiment was sincere. And there's a lot of pride in India about his ascension to become prime minister. But not so in the UK, my understanding is. The Tories are down 30 points compared to the Labour Party. So for an American audience, it's hard to understand how you could have a government so unpopular that could still be in place. Well, uh, like the American system, you can only have elections when elections are due. And though the majority of the population really want an election, opinion poll after opinion poll saying people are begging for election, even conservative voters. I mean, to have, you know, yet another uh, prime minister imposed on the people that they haven't had a chance to vote for. This time, not even his party had a chance to vote for. This feels very undemocratic, but there's not much anybody can do with it, do about it in the Constitution, because if they want, they can hang on for a full five years before having uh, an election for so long as he holds together his own party. As long as, you know, Westminster MPs don't vote for an election, there won't be one. So the only people that could vote for an election that would bring about a change are the culprits themselves, the Tories. Pretty much. I mean, a majority in the House of Commons for an election would have one, but the Conservatives have a large majority. They have a majority of about 70 at the moment. So they would have to have a big rebellion within their own ranks to bring about a majority in the House of Commons for an election. And that would be Turkey's voting for Christmas, because, as you say, at the moment, maybe, you know, 25, 30 percent Labour ahead, large numbers of them would lose their seats. And uh, I think they'd rather hang on for another two years than leave immediately. So Sunak has appointed uh, Jeremy Hunt as or kept him on as the Chancellor. And Dominic Raab is his deputy prime minister. Raab, is, of course, is an ardent Brexiteer. Isn't this whole sorry story a result of the original sin of Brexit that, in effect, none of these prime ministers in a row, starting with Cameron, have been able to get out from under the folly of that uh, self-inflicted wound? Well, I wish I thought that Sunak thought it was folly. Uh, Liz Truss certainly didn't. She was a strong Brexiteer and has put in legislation which is going through, despite the fact she's gone, is going through the House of Commons at the moment to wipe out all EU legislation that's on our uh, that's on our books and by the end of next year, which is terrifying because there's no way you can replace it with something else in that time. Uh, Rishi Sunak is himself a devoted Brexiteer because there was no kind of particular political uh, advantage in him being pro-Brexit at the time that he was when the, his boss, the Cameron government at that time, were very anti-Brexit. So he's, I'm afraid, a sincere believer, and we hope that maybe, like many of the voters who voted for Brexit, he's had second thoughts. We hope that maybe he's seen the disaster that it's brought on this country in many, many ways, and will try to tame the more extreme people in his party. But he's got a lot of them in his cabinet, I'm afraid. And Liz Truss's farewell address, if you could call it that, she called for tax cuts. I mean, that's almost surreal. She was entirely unrepentant. Not a single suggestion that she realised that she had 
brought upon this country an absolute cataclysm of people with with mortgages, uh, people's pension funds, uh, everything was put at risk. I mean, it, it sent quite a ripple around the world economy, too. I mean, it, what she did within a few weeks was phenomenally dangerous. And yet she re- restated exactly the position that she held when she came into power and which won her the conservative vote, which is to say we want low taxes, we want uh, minimal regulation of any kind. Uh, we think that you know, that's the way to get growth. We believe in trickle-down economics, where you know you make sure that the rich do well and hope that everybody else gets some benefit from it. I mean, there was not one pause to say perhaps we did it too fast or perhaps we didn't do it quite right. Nothing, not a word. So did you coin the phrase, uh, Polly Toynbee, the moron premium in higher borrowing costs because of this stupidity? No, it came from the markets themselves. Bloomberg found it, uh, that's what people were saying. I think it's existed for a while and it refers to countries around the world that are regarded to have very unstable and impossible politics. And therefore, the premium that they pay for borrowing will be higher. And we had joined the disreputable group of countries that pay a moron premium, which is shameful. So fill us in a little bit about what you've written in your article at The Guardian, Polly Toynbee, Rishi Sunak's cuts will be more brutal than austerity. Remember, they are a choice, not a necessity. He said that he boasted before the Tunbridge Wells Tories that he had deliberately diverted funds from deprived urban areas to affluent places like theirs. Elaborate, if you will. Yes, this was in the summer when he was competing with Liz Truss to be leader and was traveling around talking to conservative parties. And when he went to talk to the Tunbridge Wells group, very, very well-heeled, uh, affluent part of the country, uh, he you know, was implying that he wasn't going to follow through Boris Johnson's leveling up idea where there would be some evening out between the rich south and the poor north. Uh, And he boasted that he himself, as chancellor, had diverted money from what he said were Labour's plans for uh, Labour's way of of putting money into deprived areas. And he was taking it out of deprived areas to level it up with richer areas, which is uh, an extraordinary thing. And we shall see now whether that's going to be his policy. Well, the fact that, uh, as you point out in your article, uh, Polly Toynbee, that he's richer than the king who just anointed him today, I take it that King Charles didn't say anything quite as provocative as his apparent sort of sigh when uh, he last (laughs) met with Liz Truss. Maybe it had something to do with the fact that Liz Truss saw his mother just before she died. I don't know, but uh, what happened there? I think he's probably, uh, King Charles has probably learned his lesson that the cameras are on and the sound is on for the first few moments when a new prime minister comes in and shakes his hand and they take pictures, but they're not really supposed to say anything. This is meant to be the most secret of conversations. So he said something like, oh dear, oh dear. Uh, It was not a very good thing to say as Liz Truss arrived, but my goodness, it was prescient. It was oh dear, oh dear for the country and parts of the world too. Uh, So I'm sure he seems to have said nothing audible uh, for the cameras as uh, Rishi Sunak arrived, and I'm sure we'll be careful in future. What they say in private, we never know. Technically, all he has to do is to ask Rishi Sunak, 
can you command a majority in the House of Commons? And Rishi Sunak replies, yes. And then he is anointed. They could call kissing of hands, but they shake hands. They don't actually kiss hands. So in terms of his wealth, though, compared to King Charles, he married well, right? When he was at Stanford, he met his wife, who's the daughter of a Indian billionaire who owns a big tech company. Yes, I mean he made a lot of money himself. He's a Goldman Sachs man, and uh, you know a lot of people have said, well, it's all very well being very significant and a very good thing to have our first uh, Asian, our first Indian prime minister. But actually, he's also the first Goldman Sachs uh, prime minister, and that is a whole culture of its own as well. And um, you know, it's very much a servant of the markets. And uh, we shall see which has the most effect. Um, but he, yes, he he was so he he had significant wealth, but nothing like his uh, wife we met, who is the daughter of a billionaire, and um, so majority of his money would come from his wife. But he was well healed already, and she took advantage of the non-domicile tax status, which means that she didn't have to pay taxes on her wealth. I take it she had to had to curtail that at some point. This was quite extraordinary that it then emerged while he was Chancellor of the Exchequer that his wife has non-DOM status, which is not really very respectable. It means that all of her money, because most of it's outside the country, doesn't pay British tax. Very different to the American tax system. The Americans are really stringent about this. Anyone uh, you know, living in their country has to play, pay American tax on all of their income. There is this dodgy way round it in the British tax system that if you can claim that you come from abroad and you might be going to live abroad again, I mean, it does mean you have to pretend you're going to be living abroad again. And it seems a bit odd that she seems to think that she's not totally bound to this country. But then it turned out that he had a green card, which was even more astonishing. And to sit on a, to hold a green card from America you have to have pledged that it is your intention to live permanently in America. Well, how can you have a British Chancellor of the Exchequer who's pledged that? Well, the moment it was exposed, both things were cancelled. But it was uh, a sense that he was footloose. They belong to a big international jet-set world. He's got fantastic properties all over the world, including one in, uh, uh, in, in America. And a sense that he, well, if it didn't work out for him here, he could be hopping off to anywhere else, a real Goldman Sachs sort of culture. Well, we had a Goldman Sachs Secretary of the Treasury in Stephen Mnuchin, and he oversaw the massive tax cuts for the rich, which have ballooned the deficit here in this country, and ironically, guess who's being blamed for the deficit and for uh, inflation? Um, none other than our current president, Joe Biden. And it's it's amazing that (laughs) the Republicans' leader, who would be the leader of the the House, if you will, Kevin McCarthy, recently said that they are prepared, if they take over on November the 9th, they are prepared to literally tank the global economy to force cuts in Social Security and Medicare and also cut funds for Ukraine. So it's amazing to have a have a, a party that's complaining <laughs> about the economic policies of Biden when they are already boasting that they'll be the wrecking crew of the global economy. Extraordinary, but uh, you know, 
shameless mendacity is <laughs> is part of that heritage and we've had plenty of it here with the Boris Johnson Liz Truss regime it's um uh, no I've been blaming everybody else uh, when your own tax cutting system doesn't work that's um you know very much the way it goes but um we hope perhaps lessons have been learnt and perhaps that the medicine of the Liz Truss regime might not be all in vain because any time any other uh, government tries this or any time any, anybody in this country suggests again what we really need is big tax cuts, I think the public understands now we know where that leads. It leads to disaster and uh, I think there'll be much less clamour for tax cuts for the time being at any rate until people forget. But let's talk about the real lives of the real people in in the UK, not the handful of very wealthy that Sunak, uh, the world from which he comes. In your article, you talk about how public services now are at the breaking point. You're entering a very cold winter because of all of this political turmoil and par- paralysis from Brexit and then on top of that, the internal wranglings of leadership struggles in the Tory party have paralysed governance in the UK, which is facing some serious both economic and political headwinds, along with Russia's war in Ukraine, creating an energy crisis. So there are real, real issues that have not been dealt with. As you face a cold winter there, people can't afford their energy bills. There are some, a lot of people in the north, as you point out, are having problems even putting food on the table. What is Sunak going to do in terms of uh, leader of, of all of the country as opposed to the Tunbridge Wells Tories? Well, it's going to be very difficult because ever since the first austerity, when the Conservatives first came in in 2010, uh, a huge axe fell on, in, 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 in the excuse being, oh, well, we've had this great banking global banking crisis for which they blamed Labour as if Labour had somehow crashed the world economy. And uh, therefore, we need to cut back on spending. Labour is overspent. Uh, and so there were huge cuts then. But uh, there's been no repair since then. Um, and all, most of our public services are still uh, funded less than they were in 2010. Uh, our teachers are paid 8% less than they were in 2010. Our nurses, our doctors are paid less than they were in 2010. As a result, um, with employment shortage, a lot of people are leaving these public services, skilled people we really need. And it's a dire situation. Schools are much less funded, uh, well-funded than they were, and uh, in a really bad state, and all the capital funding for their repairs has been cut. But it looks as if we're going in for another round of these cuts, that none of the budgets for any of these public services are going to match inflation and nor are people's pay. We're in for a whole series of strikes. The nurses are balloting at the moment to go on strike and so are a whole lot of other public sector workers um, because they simply can't take a further huge cut to their pay on top of um, it having already fallen back so steeply. So this would really undermine the national health system, which I understand is something that the people in the UK have great pride in. There is a passionate uh, uh, adoration of the health service, you could say. When people were asked, I mean, around the time of the Queen's death, a lot of 
surveys were done about what people feel about Britishness, what it is to be British, what makes them proud. The NHS, the National Health Service, came top of what makes people proud to be British, uh, you know, way beyond, you know, our history or anything else or indeed our monarchy. And so there's a strong, passionate commitment to it, but it is in a very bad way. There are 7 million people waiting uh, for operations, and that list is rising. When the Conservatives took over, there was there were virtually none. There was virtually no waiting list. Uh, and that's what the cuts do. It's those cold surgery, elective surgery, people waiting as opposed to emergencies um, that get delayed and will be delayed much more because they're just aren't the staff and there isn't the money to hire the staff but also not the staff available to expand the service to do all those operations that need to be done. Well Polly Dornby I thank you for joining us here and giving us an update it does seem pretty grim the the winter of your discontent is about to fall upon you right? I'm afraid so I'm afraid so and we've just heard as you speak that the Home Secretary who's been appointed, who is called Suella Braverman, who is the most extreme anti-immigration person, uh, who says she dreams of sending uh, refugees to Rwanda, this peculiar deal we have to send them off to a country that's willing to take them. Um, And that's going to cause real tensions. Um, It's going to be an emblem of extremism in this government, I'm afraid. If people were hoping for a quiet and steady time, that may not be what we get. Thanks again, Polly. Okay, thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye. I've been speaking with Polly Toynbee, who's a columnist for The Guardian, who was formerly the BBC Social Affairs Editor, columnist and Associate Editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly, and a reporter and feature writer for The Observer. She is the co-author of Dismembered, How the Attack on the State Harms Us All. And her latest article at The Guardian is Rishi Sunak's cuts will be more brutal than austerity. Remember, they are a choice, not a necessity. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back exploring the disconnect between the Republicans running against the Biden economy, which just cut the deficit by a record amount, and the GOP's apparent intention to crash the global economy to force cuts in Social Security and Medicare. If we make it through December Everything's gonna be alright, I know It's the coldest time of winter And I shiver when I see the falling snow Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org and joining us now is Lynn Paramore, who's a senior research analyst at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, where she founded and edits the Next New Deal blog, a cultural theorist who studies the intersection of culture and economics. She's the author of Reading the Sphinx, Ancient Egypt in 19th Century Literature Culture, as well as the e-books Corporations for the 99% and New Economic Visions. And she has an article at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, How Corporations Get Away with Murder to Inflate Prices on Rent, Food and Electricity. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lynn Paramore. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's an incredible disconnect, of course, not surprising in our divided country where, 
you know, 40% of the country are living in a bubble of delusion with alternative facts. But on Friday, President Biden hailed the, the news that the U.S. annual deficit plummeted from $2.8 trillion in 2021 to roughly $1.4 trillion in 2022, which is the largest one-year drop in American history. And he went on to say that the new deficit numbers there's a record, a record decrease. It's never happened before. The election is not a referendum. It's a choice. It's a choice. And the Republicans criticized my economic record. But look at what I've inherited and what I've done. And look at what they've offered. So is this resonating, given the, the divide that I mentioned? I certainly hope so. And I really want to reach out, especially to younger people, because the Republicans are trying very hard right now to position themselves if they win power, and they probably will in the House at least, uh, to really steal the future of young people and to do it in a way that's very under the radar, uh, but it's been done before. And I really want people to understand what this, all about, what this is all about. And it has to do particularly with Social Security and what the Republicans want to do to that program and how they want to penalize particularly younger people and really rip away any any chance they have for a financial security in their future. Well, Kevin McCarthy's already telegraphed that that's what they're going to do. They're yeah. going to essentially extort the global economy, threatening to crash it unless the Democrats yield and allow the Republicans to cut Social Security and Medicare. And That's right. That's right. They're going to do the debt ceiling hostage taking again if they get the chance. And, you know, it's interesting. McCarthy and others don't want to say specifically how they would cut or, you know, reform Social Security as they put it euphemistically. But what's going on, you can you can get a sense of it by looking at something called the Republican Study Committee. Seventy five percent of members of the House uh, of House Republicans belong to something called the Republican Study Committee. And its platform indicates plainly that they want to cut security by raising the retirement age until it's 70 for people who were born after 1978. Now, the Republicans have done that hustle before. They did it to me, for example. In 1983, when Reagan was president, uh, under the uh, advice of Alan Greenspan, the age of Social Security was raised from what it had been since the 1930s. Uh, people were able to collect full retirement at 65. It was raised over a period of years to age 67 for people born after 1960. Now, I was born in 1970. Interestingly, I could not vote in 1983 when this was done, but two years of my retirement, of, you know, of my Social Security benefits were taken away before I could even vote. And that is going to happen again if Republicans get their way. Uh, younger generations, millennials, Generation Z, and younger are going to have their re retirement security taken away, and some of them are not even eligible to vote on it yet. Well, it's not just McCarthy that's signaled that that's what they plan to do. Senator Ron Johnson has suggested that Social Security and Medicare be eliminated as federal yes. entitlement programs. And Senator Rick Scott, 
who's in charge of the re-electing the uh, Republican Senate, he's proposed sunsetting all federal programs after five years, meaning, of course, that Social Security and Medicare would expire unless they were renewed. Yes, those are extreme positions. And there was a time when I would sort of, you know, scoff at them. But what given what's happened on abortion rights and so on, I think we have to take every threat seriously. But I'm particularly worried about this idea of raising the retirement age because so many Republicans are on board with that and because it happened before in 1983. They, they have a precedent for doing it. And it's interesting. You talk to a lot of Americans and they're not even really aware that this happened, that their Social Security uh, was taken away in 1983 for two years in, in many cases for those born after 1960. They don't even know that it happened. And this is a really serious issue. You know, one of the arguments made in 1983, a specious argument, but it was made and convinced a lot of people, was that, you know, we have to do this because people are living longer. Well, guess what? Many Americans are not living longer. The mortality rates for the United States uh, and the age at which people die uh, have been falling for many people in the population. And it's not just because of COVID. These trends actually began well before the COVID crisis. Of course, they've been exacerbated, but it's mostly ordinary people. You know, it's it's not the wealthy uh, who are suffering these mortality uh, rate declines and so on. But, um, you know, so obviously they can't use that argument. So they try to pretend that Social Security is in this crisis and the only way to fix it. And that, you know, they're talking about Medicare too. The only way to quote unquote fix it is to cut benefits for ordinary people. And that's a really, really dangerous program, especially given how precarious American retirements are anyway. And also when there's a very simple way to deal with any possible shortfalls in the future, and and I do underscore the word possible because no one knows exactly if there will be a shortfall. These are just predictions, and economists are not very good at making predictions. But raising the cap on the income at which Social Security is taxed is the way to do it. And it's the way it was intended to be done. And funnily, I just worked, looked at a poll uh, by C- that was published on CNBC. It was done by the University of Maryland, which showed that a re- majority of Republican voters are on board with that idea. When you present it to them as a question in, in a poll, so this is all nonsense. It's just a hustle, but it's worked before, and people should be very, very concerned about it. They also want to increase the Medicare eligibility age, uh, which is currently at 65. And again, you know, people are already in dire straits with their with their health care in their later years, and this would just uh, increase poverty and suffering on a massive scale. So. How are the Republicans getting away with, I mean, the polls indicate that they may take the House and even the Senate. I mean, how are they getting away with running against Biden's economy based upon the sky is falling because of inflation and because of the deficits? And we pointed out that the deficits have cut in half this year by, by the Biden administration. So there's a huge disconnect here. And I don't yeah. understand how, is it the problem that the Democrats aren't messaging properly? They're not getting the word out? Well, I think the Democrats certainly could do more on the messaging front to make this simple and clear. I mean, again, you ask a person on the street, do you know that Social Security, two years of your Social Security was 
taken away in 1983, they say, no, people need to know that. We need to hammer this message home. They've stolen your retirement before, and they will do it again on false pretenses. A lot of what they do has to do with misleading the public, uh, hoodwinking the public, and talking about programs that uh, ideas that can sound as if they make sense. But if you start digging into them, you realize that they're utter nonsense. One of these, for example, is the idea of means testing. This Republican study committee that I mentioned before that 75% of House Republicans belong to has stated that it wants to means test Medicare. In other words, phase it out for people of higher incomes. Now, you know, logically, a lot of people might think, well, maybe that's not such a bad idea. But it is historically a backdoor way of dividing the public, of dividing support and decreasing support for the program and doing it in a very underhanded way. I did a, a, I remember I interviewed several economists on this issue several years ago, including Nobel laureate Joe Stiglitz, who said means testing is just plain mean. There are certain things that we believe people are entitled to no matter what their income level is. One of those, for example, is public education. We don't means test public education because we want to have widespread, unified support for this program that is the right of every American. And we want to have the same thing for Social Security and we want to have the same thing for Medicare. And Republicans know that if they start with this means testing line, a lot of people will be duped into thinking that it's necessary and it's, it's, it's a good idea. And it's not. So what messages then do you think? I mean, Biden, obviously, on Friday, he did speak. I mean, he's not the greatest speaker, let's face it. But he did vow. He said, let me be clear. I will not yield. I will not cut Social Security. I will not cut Medicare, no matter how hard they work. And folks, we know what the Republican Congress will do if they regain power. They're yeah. telling us straight up about it. So yeah. these are the facts. So again, is it the case that we're in fact free America, that you've got these people in this bubble of delusion that Fox and the other and other right-wing media have created and the famous alternative facts are carrying the day? I mean... Well, look, there's been a lot of obfuscation on these issues that Democrats have helped create over the years. I mean, when Obama was president, uh, you know, he had a commission to, to look at the deficit, which was recommending uh, cuts to Social Security and Medicare. So Democrats have sometimes gotten on board with some of these ideas, too. Um, I hope that that will not happen now, and I hope that Biden will stick to his word, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't rest too easily on that idea. And certainly if the Republicans take the House and, God forbid, take the Senate, they're going to have a lot more leverage to wreak havoc and wreak havoc on the economy, you know, by demanding these things. So they can do a lot of damage and it, it'll be difficult to resist them. Well, first of all, they're, they're a party of trolls. Yeah. They're fighting culture wars. I mean, where's the platform? Do you, yeah. do you know what the Republican platform is? Well, it, 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 you know, except for things that I mentioned, like this Republican study committee in the House, which which has a platform of, you know, cutting benefits that uh, ordinary people depend on. That's as close as they get. Right. But isn't that a stealth program? That's right. They're real. You know, the, the real policies that, that they want to enact are hidden because guess what? 
Nobody wants them. The majority of people do not want this. The support for Social Security and Medicare, it has bipartisan support among the public. Uh, and, and in fact, dealing with inflation, you know, if you ask ordinary people, poll after poll shows, they don't want uh, austerity measures. They don't want the kinds of things that, you know, Liz Trust in the UK just tried to put over. They don't want tax cuts for the very rich. They um, they want tax increases for the very rich. They want the rich to pay their share. They want corporations to pay their share. They don't want corporations price gouging and colluding to raise prices artificially. You know, a lot of inflation is being driven by industries in which there are only three or four companies operating, you know, there's an oligopoly, they have concentrated power, and they're using worries about inflation to raise prices way beyond costs. And guess what? If Republicans win in November, do you think they're going to be interested in, uh, in enforcing laws to prevent companies from doing that? Do you think they're going to be robust antitrust crusaders? I don't think so. But when you say the people don't want it, and that that's why they they have these stealth programs, or they don't yeah. want to talk about what their real intentions are, even though yeah. McCarthy has said that they're going to basically, you know, threaten the entire global economy to tank it in order to force cuts in Social Security and Medicare, and also cut spending or funds for the war in Ukraine. So he's come out with that, which I find amazing that. Yeah, People he's aren't. come out with it, but he hasn't said how it's going to happen. Right, right. But the disconnect that I see in the country, Lynn Paramore, is that the people don't want any of this stuff. They, in fact, they That's want right. these programs improved, not cut. But That's right, expanded. This is the wish list of the plutocrats. And exactly. they're the ones that are driving the Republican Party and trying to buy our politics. I mean, look what just happened with Leonard Leo getting one6 a billion dollars from one right-wing donor, he's already stacked the Supreme Court, which is a way that the plutocracy is able to take power. And if they take the legislature as well as the as the judicial branch, then we are a plutocracy. I mean, I yeah. think that, isn't that the argument? And I wonder whether that is something that the American people could get if it was only articulated. You know, I think... I think that the American people are smarter. The voters are smarter than they're given credit for. Because again, they often support sensible programs like Social Security. They support, a majority supports a woman's right to choose whether she's going to have a child or not. Uh, these, these things a majority of people support. But you're right, there's a disconnect and it comes down to money. It comes down to a money-driven political system. You know, it's been said, and it's worth repeating, you can have the concentration of wealth, severe inequality, or you can have a democracy. You can't have both. They don't work together. Wealth is too concentrated in the United States and other places around the globe. By the way, it's not just a problem here. And it means that plutocrats are have been seizing the control of the political system and getting their will done, and the will of the people is over and over ignored. There have been massive studies done that um, that demonstrate how this happens, how how robust the correlation is between the policies that, let's say, five percent of the population wants, 
uh, and what and the policies that are enacted and the disconnect between those of ordinary people and their uh, elected representatives. So it's really not the fault of the American people at the end of the day. It's it's a political system that has become corrupt. And, you know, our 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 voting system, look how difficult it is that for people to vote in the United States, we have extremely low voter turnout compared to other countries. And it's not because people don't want to vote. It's because we make it so hard with all of the restrictions on what time you can vote and how you can vote and what kinds of identification you have to show. You know, we're we're an outlier in the world for demanding these kinds of um, draconian rules when it comes to voting. And that's, of course, in the interest of plutocrats, too. So they they have really seized hold. And it's unfortunately it's made the public so distraught and distrusting that they're tending to just punish whoever is in power to punish incumbents. And that doesn't solve the problem, uh, alas. Well, Lynn Paramour, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you for the work that you do. Well, thank you, Lynn. And again, I've been speaking with Lynn Paramore, who's a senior research analyst at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, where she founded and edits the Next New Deal blog. A cultural theorist who studies the intersection of culture and economics, she's the author of Reading the Sphinx, Ancient Egypt in 19th Century Literary Culture, as well as the e-books Corporations for the 99% and New Economic Visions. And she has an article at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, How Corporations Get Away with Murder to Inflate Prices on Rent, Food and Electricity. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into President Biden's warning to Putin today not to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine or conduct a false flag operation with a dirty bomb, which they would blame on Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Edwin Lyman, who's the Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists and an internationally recognized expert on nuclear proliferation and nuclear terrorism, as well as nuclear power safety and security. He's a member of the Institute of Nuclear Materials Management and has testified numerous times before Congress and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And he's the co-author of a critically acclaimed book, Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster. Welcome to Background Briefing, Edwin Lyman. Good day. Well, thanks for joining us. And something serious is going on here in terms of Russian threats or, or claims that Ukraine is about to use a dirty bomb, or detonate a dirty bomb on its own territory, which on the surface makes absolutely no sense. The Russian defense minister has had calls to his counterparts in the UK, the US, Turkey and France and he called the Secretary of Defense uh, Lloyd Austin again for a second time and a letter was addressed today to the United Nations Secretary General and the head of the Security Council in which Russia claims that Ukraine is about to 
use a dirty bomb on its territory, which again makes no sense. They also circulated a 310-page document to the Security Council repeating these earlier debunked claims that Ukraine and NATO and Ukraine's backers were working on a bioweapon. So why is Putin doing this? It makes no sense, but it's quite concerning. And today, President Biden, when he got a COVID shot, was asked about what Russia's intentions are. And Biden said, I spent a lot of time today talking about that. Let me just say Russia would be making an incredibly serious mistake if it were use a tactical nuclear weapon. And then he went on to say, I'm not guaranteed that it's a false flag operation yet. We don't know. It would be a serious, serious mistake. So something's going on and it's not very reassuring and I'm quite worried. Uh, what about you, Edwin? I, I do find uh, this conversation worrisome, but because, as you point out, it is uh, rather confusing and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's hard to game out what exactly Russia's strategy is and, and purpose for raising these allegations and how that might uh, feed into its uh, the strategy as it continues to prosecute the war that it's losing. So because of the uncertainty and the confusion, uh, it, it's very troubling. Well, this is an, your area of expertise, Edwin. Isn't the fear that the Russians who occupy the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine, which is the largest in Europe, might be planning on doing something there, creating a kind of accident which would, in effect, release a lot of radiological material into the air. I mean, a dirty bomb is not the same as a nuclear weapon, so there's no, there's no relationship there. And in the uh, letter today that they delivered to the United Nations, the claims they made were so unscientific, equating a dirty bomb with a nuclear weapon, and they just don't have the physics right. So it's clearly written by an amateur or somebody that didn't know anything about nuclear weapons. So again, is there a possibility that they could do something with Zaporizhia and blame it on the on the Ukrainians who, I mean, why in God's name they would want to contaminate their own land, I don't know. But again, they keep harping on this. So something's in the wind, isn't it? Yes, and I, I have to say I haven't seen the letter yet, but what you described is troubling, and this gets at the root of the concern, is that there is this conflation in, in public discourse between a radiological weapon, that is a dirty bomb, and a nuclear weapon. And they are very different. The uh, potential consequences of each are very different. And the, the, the problem with uh, confusing one for the other is that it could lead to a disproportionate response in the event that a dirty bomb is used. So I think it, it, there have to be clear, bright lines uh, to indicate that a radiological weapon while it could have uh, serious consequences depending on its characteristics and where it's set off and the material it uses and how large it is, uh, that it's still not going to rival the destructive power and the massive number of casualties that even a, a low-yield nuclear weapon could cause. So it's very important to distinguish those. Now, there are, you know, and also it's not clear when people say dirty bomb uh, often what they mean. So... Typically, 
a dirty bomb is uh, a radiological dispersal device that is uh, combining a conventional explosive with some radioactive material, for instance, a radioactive source that might be used in medicine or industry, and using that simply to disperse radioactive material that would create a, uh, a background a level of radiation which would be higher than normal and could uh, pose health risks that would require the, uh, some area to be interdicted for some period of time and decontaminated, uh, but it would be very hard to construct and use a dirty bomb in a way that it would lead to a great enhancement of loss of life, at least immediately, compared to the conventional explosive that uses uh, that's used to disperse the material. So, uh, so that's one thing. But uh, what you're also talking about is the potential uh, uh, radiological sabotage of a nuclear facility like the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and you could think of that as a stationary dirty bomb. In fact. Uh, a much larger one because even the largest radiological sources that are in use in industry uh, would are still uh, much smaller than the amount of radioactive material and even a fraction of the spent fuel that's stored at a plant like Zaporizhia. But you can't move Zaporizhia around, so uh, it would be hard. Uh, you know, it, it would be hard to sabotage the plant and not. Um, have attribution or knowledge of who is actually behind that attack. So, so I'm, I'm again perplexed by the, the motivation if that's actually what the Russians are talking about, sabotaging the spent nuclear fuel storage facility at Zaporizhia. Well, that's the most logical explanation, though, isn't it? They control that area. So if they were to sabotage the plant and particularly the spent fuel ponds, uh, which would then create a steam explosion releasing a lot of plutonium, which would be catastrophic, but then they could use that event, blame it on the Ukrainians, to perhaps fire a tactical nuclear weapon over Kherson or somewhere like that because they're, they're about to lose Kherson, and there's a concern that on their way out of, out of Kherson, they may blow up this big dam, which would then flood Kherson. So we've seen the the Russians conduct this brutal war with absolute abandon in terms of human rights and the laws of war, etc. They're looting and raping and horrible atrocities. So I'm not demonizing the Russians, but I certainly think that Putin uh, is capable of anything. Yeah, well... Um... Uh, within the ability for him to uh, preserve his own wealth and, and life. But, um, uh, you know, it, it's important to uh, to really lay out technically what the risk is. So let's take uh, Zaporizhia uh, for now. Now, there are six nuclear reactors on site. They are all currently shut down. But in each reactor has a spent fuel pool attached to it, but that those pools are actually under the containment structure, which is a reinforced concrete containment building. Uh, so they are actually relatively uh, less vulnerable than, let's say, the spent fuel pools at a Western pressurized water reactor, which are typically outside of the containment. Uh, but Zaporizhia does have a dry cask 
spent fuel storage facility. And what that means is that after the fuel in the pools ages for some period of time, cools down both in terms of heat and radioactivity, then it can be transferred outside of the pool into a concrete cask, which only holds a small fraction of the total amount of spent fuel from the reactor, uh, but does not require active cooling to keep the fuel from overheating. And so what the Ukrainians have said is that the Russians have sequestered the dry cast storage facility. They're not allowing Ukrainian personnel access. They're blocking access to the International Atomic Energy Agency inspectors who are actually on the site. And Ukraine is speculating that they may be planning to sabotage that uh, facility. But again, technically, it's not that easy to, to turn one of those dry casks into a radiological weapon that would lead to a large release of radioactivity. Uh, it's actually somewhat challenging, and it wouldn't be something that Russia could do without, I think, having a pretty clear uh, trail of who is responsible. So again, I don't think that scenario would be uh, would make sense for them if they want to blame the Ukrainians. It would make more sense if, let's say, there were an accidental uh, uh, accidental damage to the plant that they claimed was due to Ukrainian shelling and you couldn't tell where the shells were coming from because the Russians are in control of the site. It'd be hard for them not to uh, uh, not to have the finger pointed on at them. So again, it's mystifying. But the other part of your um, uh, the question is, would Russia actually retaliate with a tactical nuclear weapon in response to a radiological incident either a dirty bomb or sabotage of uh, Zaporizhia. And that's that's the concern I have, because as bad as those radiological events may be, they are not going to rise to the uh, level that uh, a, any kind of nuclear weapon response would be proportionate or appropriate. And that's why this confusion between these two types of um, weapons is so uh, disturbing. Well, Edwin Lyman, we know that the Russians are mining with explosives the big dam on the Dnieper River that could create a tsunami. It also is the it's the last sort of bridge over which they can retreat as they appear to be losing Kherson. Do we know whether they're laying explosives on the the dry cast pool? The, the, yeah, I mean, there's no uh, concrete information about what the Russians may be doing at that dry cast storage facility. And with regard to the dam, the uh, Kahovka Dam, um, uh, where, again, there are reports that they have been uh, mine, laying mines or explosives at that dam with the expectation that they may actually try to blow it up, uh, that dam is just downstream of the reactor facility. And so it would not directly flood the plant if it were breached but it would affect the ability to cool uh, the reactor cores and spend fuel over the long term because it does supply a cooling water to remove waste heat from the site. So it could have an, an impact on the plant, but the bigger impact would be the direct flooding of uh, communities downstream of the dam. So there were reports earlier that the Russians had mined the intakes to the water from the river into the cooling ponds. 
Do you, have you heard any more about that? And what, why would they do that? I, I haven't. Um, there, I did hear that, you know, there are landmines that were laid in the outside the reactor perimeter and they continue to be detonated primarily by wildlife. Uh, so there's a kind of constant background of uh, explosions going on around the plant, but I haven't heard specifically that they uh, tried to disrupt any of the intake pipes. And again, uh, you know, it'd be mystifying why Russia would want to uh, sabotage this plant, uh, both from the point of view that they want to preserve uh, Ukrainian territory because they want it to become part of Russia, and also because the plant itself would provide a valuable energy resource. So you know, strategically, it just hasn't made a lot of sense to me why they would want to damage it, except in the scenario where they're retreating and their desire is to scorch the earth uh, that they leave behind. And that's that's possibly the most troubling uh, consideration here. So just in the last minute, Edwin Lyman, then, given the strange amateurish letter that uh, came to the UN today from the Russians, obviously this is a propaganda operation, but it also, Putin has made so many not so veiled threats about nuclear weapons and even talking about how the United States were the first to use nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So there's so much talk about this going on that there has to be a purpose behind it. And I guess it certainly is a way to make people nervous. And, you know, the the Progressive Caucus in the Congress wrote a letter which was released yesterday and rescinded today to suggest that there's need to negotiate. So there are people that are afraid um, that this situation could get out of hand. I don't know what kind of negotiation you could have with somebody that's so reckless and dangerous as Putin himself appears to be, but uh, is there a way out? Can you see any way out of this uh, at all? Well, you know, I'm not a a geopolitical strategist. well, first of all, with regard to protecting the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, I think there is you know, there, there is a potential solution, and that's what the International Atomic Energy Agency and other uh, entities are promoting, and that would be to essentially create a, uh, a neutral zone at and around Zaporizhia so that all sides respect its physical integrity and do not do anything to challenge or damage the plant. And so that would be the first step. Now, that's not demilitarization, because demilitarization would mean Russia would have to remove its the troops and weapons that it may be storing there, and they don't want to do that. Um, but that uh, but the first step would be for both sides to agree that they don't want to have shelling anywhere in the vicinity of the nuclear plant. You Make sure that its offsite power lines are secure, et cetera, uh, and, and that there's no damage to infrastructure that could indirectly affect the plant, like the, the dam. Um, with regards to the larger problem, you know, I think part of the part of the issue is this confusion uh, between dirty bombs and nuclear weapons. That the there's this perception the public has this fear of radiation, and that it just invoking the threat of radioactive contamination is itself uh, something that frightens people, perhaps not or out of proportion to what the actual impacts would be. 
So, um, so that's why this raising the specter of a dirty bomb, uh, they, you know, it gets people's attention. That's clearly what's happened, but uh, it's not. But you have to maintain uh, a sense of proportion. Understand these differences that I discussed between the use of a dirty bomb and the use of a nuclear weapon. And the danger is that if they are conflated and confused in the public's mind, Putin may think he that would give him the justification to use a nuclear weapon if there were a dirty bomb set off as a false flag operation or whatever. So it's just important for um, for the West, for NATO to make clear that they do not see a dirty bomb use as something that would be a provocation that would require a, a response with nuclear weapons. That That has to be restated uh, very clearly. Well, Edwin Lyman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I'll be speaking with Edwin Lyman, who's the Director of Nuclear Power Safety at the Union of Concerned Scientists and an internationally recognized expert on nuclear proliferation and nuclear terrorism, as well as nuclear power safety and security. He's a member of the Institute of Nuclear Materials Management and has testified numerous times before Congress and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and he's co-author of the critically acclaimed book, Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.